This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. From music to maps, money and modernity, this is where ideas come to life. Well, good morning and good evening to our listeners. We have a very special edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. Uh, I I say that a.m. p.m. because we have a panel of it's 8 a.m. here and 8 p.m. in Jakarta, and we have a we have a really interesting group to talk about ASEAN and the regional response to the crisis in in Myanmar. Um, I'll kick it over to our our co-host, um, Ari Glass. Ari, do you want to um, uh, go ahead and give us a little little intro of, of who our panelists are? Sure. Um, so I'll introduce myself to, uh, to begin here. So I'm Ari Glass, an assistant professor of political science here at uh, Northern Illinois University and uh, a faculty associate with the Center for Southeast Asian Studies. Uh, and my research centers on ASEAN and its regional diplomacy. So with Eric, I've helped bring together three excellent speakers to help us explore ASEAN's role in this crisis. Um, first off, we have Dylan M.H. Lowe, who's an assistant professor uh, at the Public Policy and Global Affairs Program at Nanyang uh, Technological University in Singapore. Uh, his research centers on Chinese diplomacy and ASEAN regionalism, and he has published widely on these topics in journals such as Pacific Review, International Relations of Asia Pacific, International Studies Review, and the Australian Journal of International Affairs. So it's great to have you here, Dylan. Thanks so yeah, much. welcome, Dylan. Uh, and next we have uh, Deepak Nair, from, uh, an assistant professor of political science at National University Singapore. His research centers on the study of micro-sociological international relations, and he has a substantive interest in the study of diplomacy and international bureaucracy and Southeast Asian international politics. And he's published widely on these issues as well, I will add. So uh, great to have you here as well, Deepak. Thanks. And uh, last but certainly not least, we have Phillips Vermonti, the Executive Director of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, uh, Indonesia in Jakarta. Uh, Phillips is a leading scholar and commentator on Indonesian foreign and domestic politics on uh, regional affairs within ASEAN more generally. And he's also, crucially for us here, an alumni of NIU's own political science uh, program here as well, where he received his, uh, his doctorate in 2012. So it's especially wonderful to have you join us back here, Phillips, even, uh, even virtually. So thank you all three for joining us this morning, this evening. Thanks, thanks, Ari. Yeah, and and, uh, and welcome to uh, to Deepak and Phillips as uh, as well. So maybe um, it's a good idea to, to 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 drop our listeners in a time and a place, um, and um, you know anyone can chime in here. The the crisis in Myanmar. Um, what does the situation look like today? And and crucially, kind of how did we get here? Anyone want to chime in on that? Well, <clears throat> if I may start. Uh... You know, it started uh, because of the coup in, in February uh, as the Tatmadaw, the, the military in Myanmar, <clears throat> rejected and accused the election filled with fraud, the November uh, 2020 election. But then, the, as in many parts of the world, uh, such accusations sometimes is hard to prove. And uh, 
seemingly uh, Tatmadaw failed to provide proof and then the, they just <clears throat> took over the power and disbanded the, the, the parliament. So that's why now we have uh, this situation in, in, in Myanmar. But uh, <clears throat> I think uh, we also need to keep in mind that uh, Myanmar is a multi-ethnic country. And then the, prior to the election, uh, there had been some problems, of course, in, in Myanmar. Um, military has been ruling the country for more than 60 years, I think. So it's, it's hard to wipe the military out of the picture. And then not to mention because the ethnic groups, uh, ethnic armed groups, not only ethnic groups, uh, ethnic armed groups uh, provide, I think, uh, the reason for, for the military, you know, or, or the pretext for the military to, to maintain power under the pretext of maintaining the unity of the country and so on and so forth. Something somehow uh, very <clears throat> similar or, or <clears throat> in Indonesia that the uh, military everywhere would uh, have to kind of a self-proclaimed uh, duty to maintain the unity of the country, especially in countries with such a fragmented uh, society. But now <clears throat> the problem has been the you know, the, the civilian groups also, I think, rightly defending, defending their, their right for, for, for democracy. And, uh, you know, as, as we know, the two sides would not, as of now, would not uh, tone down uh, their position. And, then, and that's how the situations, uh, I think, turn uh, very ugly. And uh, with such a, a victims, uh, civilian, unarmed civilian killed and, and so on by the military, of course, uh, provided uh, uh, you know, uh, a demand for outside <clears throat> parties to intervene if necessary, or if, if they have the, the, the ability and authority to do so. But then uh, that's where all these uh, uh, complexities uh, play out. Thanks, thanks. Um... I'll jump in with a question building on um, what Phillips has just explored here um, and ask a question, uh, maybe first to, to Dylan, but if Deepak has some thoughts as well, um, I'd love to hear from both of you on the on ASEAN's role as one of those actors that may have the authority and interest and ability to become involved in the complexities that, um, that Phillips has just given us. So I think for most international observers, um, ASEAN has been kind of seen as the hub for a potential regional if not international response here. Um, and I'm wondering if you can give us and our listeners, maybe Dylan, a little bit of a, a primer on the organization, um, a little bit about its, uh, its form and its function, um, uh, what its role or its mandate is in the region that would equip it, this, this mm. organization to be, to play the role that it may be playing in attempting right. to respond to the crisis. Sure. Um, so in a nutshell, uh, ASEAN is a regional organization made up of 10 member states, of which Myanmar is um, a member of. Um, you, if you want to think about ASEAN a bit more precisely, you contrast it against the EU, because uh, the EU is very clearly pulling together sovereignty, whereas for ASEAN, it's very clearly uh, the organization of the reason for being is so that member states can protect their own sovereignty. That poses some very interesting uh, challenges, but also because of this, it, 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 I think it gives ASEAN a unique strength in some ways as well. Um, it's widely seen as the hub for regional affairs because it involves so many different 
actors, the 10 member states themselves and the uh, uh, number of population that these member states themselves have, but also of the very active uh, diplomacy that ASEAN has engaged in with uh, external powers to make sure, firstly, that these external powers have a stick in the region um, and that um, ASEAN can remain a central force in the region, remain in the driver's seat, so to speak, that no one big major power will be able to dictate or influence matters disproportionately. And um, in the context of what's happening in Myanmar, uh, clearly ASEAN uh, is a test of ASEAN's uh, regional diplomacy. And rightfully so, because this is an issue that first and foremost, of course, uh, in, in international relations is ASEAN should be and ought to be um, at the table playing a, a central role in this. Um, and as we pointed out, why has it got to assume this position of being a regional hub of diplomacy? I mean, historically, ASEAN has always involved and uh, itself rightfully so in matters of regional affairs, as is natural for an organization that is about and is in Southeast Asia. But of course, we can uh, talk about and discuss how effective ASEAN's response in regional diplomacy has been thus far. Uh, um, personally, I think that ASEAN's, uh, ASEAN has done as best as it could with the conditions, of course, my, my fellow panelists may have some disagreements, uh, as far as it could with, uh, with the conditions that um, are present in the ground at the moment. Um, and the five-point consensus, I do view the five-point consensus uh, that was released somewhat uh, optimistically. Uh, whether those will be realized or not, I think uh, the subsequent, subsequently we will have a deeper discussion on this. But suffice to say, um, any sort of diplomatic solution, if there is to be a solution to unlocking the Myanmar uh, crisis today, must, must involve uh, ASEAN, and, and this is one of those things that personally I think, um, although a lot of people are urging ASEAN to do more, I think uh, it's a case of more haste, less speed. So um, unfortunately, um, it is not proceeding as quickly, or ASEAN is not uh, doing as much as it should to some observers, or moving things along as quickly as it should. Uh, but I think the five-point consensus that was uh, recently released is a step in the right direction. And of course, I'll be, uh, I'm sure Deepak has more to say on that as well, and I look forward to hearing the rest on their views of this. So maybe I'll ask the same question of, of Deepak then to-, to Sure, uh, just, just, just building on Dylan's very excellent introduction, a very basic introduction to what ASEAN is. So he sort of very nicely set out the contrast with the European Union, so it's not sovereignty pooling, but sovereignty protecting. And I think just to add further texture to that point, it's worth remembering that ASEAN was created during the Cold War in Southeast Asia, uh, not for the purpose of economic integration, like the European coal and steel, and steel community was in 1957. Instead, ASEAN was created, created as a diplomatic instrument for regional reconciliation and confidence building after what was, at that point in time, the last uh, uh, inter interstate militarized dispute between island Southeast Asian states. Uh, so, so the significance of that point is that origin story of ASEAN as a, as a diplomatic instrument of regional reconciliation, the significance is that, in my view, 
going back to that origin, ASEAN has historically, and it continues to privilege political cohesion over concerns of functional efficacy. Political cohesion remains paramount. And I must also add that ASEAN succeeded at that very critical juncture in the mid 1960s or late 1960s in the, at the height of the Cold War in Southeast Asia, also because it, it marked the convergence of very like-minded regimes. They were all to the right of the political spectrum. They were certainly counter-revolutionary. They had basically marked their entry into the American orbit of the Cold War, especially Indonesia after the coup in 1965. And, uh, and, and all these states were like-minded, and even though ASEAN has changed, it has expanded, it is much more politically diverse today, there is nonetheless an abiding interest, a political goal in order and stability in ASEAN. So that has not changed. If I can ask a follow-up, is the kind of the, the famous infamous policy of sort of non-interference in domestic affairs, does it come out of that, uh, out of those initial, does its origin have a, have a big role in that as a sort of a core principle? Absolutely, but there's a really interesting twist in the story, and and the and the twist, the, argue, the argument that advanced this twist uh, comes from the scholar Lee Jones, uh, and the twist in the story is that ASEAN has historically and very aggressively, quote unquote, intervened in the affairs of one another. The qualification being it was intervention as long as it was shoring up and buttressing each other's regime and their regime security. So they've not intervened in support of the opposition. So positive intervention. Or, there you go. Yeah. So they wouldn't, the interve non-intervention is not intervening in support of oppositional forces, anti-incumbency forces in each other's societies. But in various subtle, uh, you know, uh, very subtle overt and covert ways, they have been shoring each other, supporting each other, from state building projects uh, to, you know, actual on the ground military and security cooperation, especially during the Cold War years. So, so yes, you're right about non-interference, but there is a there's a twist to that to that argument. Well, um, if I may uh, jump in there, uh, I agree with Deepak uh, about the nature of ASEAN as a sovereignty enhancing regional organization. It's not a sovereignty reducing organization, and then and that has been the uh, you know, the prime motive of, of ASEAN uh, so far. But, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in the beginning, and uh, I think for, for in the 1970s, 1980s, ASEAN was criticized as a, a club of dictators. And that's why they protect each other, right? And now it seems to me that we are back to square one. Uh, out of 10 countries in ASEAN, seemingly only Indonesia now can... Uh, you know, still uh, be categorized as a democracy. The others, you know, uh, you have uh, Junta in, 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 in Thailand, uh, in, uh, and then uh, Hun Sen has been in power for more than three decades. And then the, you have Laos, you have, a, you know, kind of a, a very strong state in Vietnam. You have a populist a leader, uh, you know, almost authoritarian one in, in the Philippines and so on and so forth. So now, I think uh, as far as this uh, uh, Myanmar uh, case is concerned, you know, uh, the reluctance uh, and the slowness of, of ASEAN to respond to the situation in Myanmar might have something to do with this fact that, uh, you know, most of the countries in Southeast Asia right now somewhat you know, is not, uh, you know, an ideal type of country to respond to such a, a coup, you know, in, in, in Myanmar. So I think this is uh, something, uh, you know, 
not a club of dictator, but uh, you know, a group of <laughs> authoritarian states of Southeast Asia right now. I like the uh, Indonesian pride, the little shade thrown too. Thanks, Phillips. That's uh, it's good. There's a qualification there, though, right? <laughs> that regardless of whichever phase we've been in, there have been more democracies or less democracies. Nonetheless, I think we can. It's, it's fair to say that democracies in Southeast Asia have always been illiberal and conservative in orientation, and yeah, oligarchic but, as well. Yeah, I, I agree, Deepak. And uh, but as ASEAN has a, a very interesting experience in Cambodia. You know, ASEAN was very active in in solving. The, the, this uh, internal uh, conflict in Cambodia and in late 70s, early 80s. And that was even before Cambodia was a member of ASEAN. Mm. And, and I think with this modality, actually, ASEAN uh, can be proud of uh, itself as well, that somehow it can work as a, a kind of a conflict resolution a platform in the region. Now, uh, the question is uh, whether you know we have enough political will uh, among these uh, ASEAN leaders right now. And uh, uh, I agree with Dylan that uh, this, this case in Myanmar is, uh, is another test for ASEAN. I will just add a minor point that uh, maybe we can throw in Malaysia and Singapore joining the ranks of Indonesia that somewhat counts as democracy. Illiberal, illiberal, yes, yes, uh, um, or not ideal. Uh, but I think we are... You know, we are we are better now than back then when we were um, called or criticized as a club of dictators. I think the political science literature has one party dominance difference. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I, I think Indonesia always wanted to be a democratic leader, but it, I don't think it wanted to by everyone going backwards in democracy. So, but still, it's a you're I, I yeah you're you're still out foot Phillips, but yeah. Um, well, uh, the ASEAN. Um, you know what? So it, in the, in the that's a great context and background. Um, Building on that background discussion, um, for the for the benefit of our audience, it'd be great if perhaps Dylan or, or Phillips, you want to take take us through in a little bit more detail what ASEAN's done since February. So I think right. uh, ASEAN's been critiqued for for its kind of slow in, in involvement uh, throughout February. That seemed to pick up a bit of steam. In, in March, and then leading to just two weeks ago to the April 24th kind of ad hoc summit that produced the five-point consensus that Dylan's mentioned already. So maybe, Phillips, you can start off by just stepping us through what, what the ASEAN response has been so far and why. Yeah, I think before uh, I answer that question, uh, you know, it's it's been difficult, actually, for, for ASEAN to... Uh, to discuss or to engage uh, Myanmar uh, in order uh, to solve if ASEAN could the problem, because uh, the situation is at such uh, domestically in, in, in Myanmar with the military killing its own citizens and then the, this uh, civil movement uh, that uh, had been very strong on the streets and so on. So any attempt to discuss or to engage with the military would be seen as a betrayal to you know, the cause of uh, human rights, the cause of democracy, and so on. And, and that happened with Indonesia. If you remember, I think sometimes in February, uh, uh, Indonesia's foreign minister, uh, Ibu Retno, uh, met accidentally, quote-unquote, in, 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 in Bangkok, in the airport. It's not really official meeting. And then next day, you see demonstration in front of the Indonesian embassy in, in, in Myanmar, uh, accusing Indonesia of uh, acknowledging the, the coup 
and and so on. And and that also I think happened before the 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 ASEAN leaders meeting in April twenty fourth. And uh, I think in the media, in the social media, uh, you might read a, a very strong uh, a statement, very strong statement from various groups within Myanmar, as well as uh, international human rights organizations saying that, uh, you know, why you invite this uh, military uh, to Jakarta, to, to the ASEAN meeting? Uh, well, <clears throat> and that's, I think, uh, I think the context that uh, uh, these ASEAN countries has uh, to operate uh, under. And uh, but uh, somehow after the the, the the ASEAN leaders meeting uh, on April twenty fourth uh, with the five consensus, I think number one uh, that uh, ASEAN has been aiming for and we should aim for is uh, the uh, stop the killing. Uh, you know I think the the, the effort has been <clears throat> uh, you know uh, pointed to that. Uh, direction and number one uh, consensus is that uh, there shall be a, a cessation of violence. But uh, you know it's it's hard. Uh, it's been already what ten days uh, after the, the the meeting, and it seems that uh, killing, uh, shooting continues and and so on. And uh, the other four consensus have not been. Uh, you know we have not seen uh, enough progress. Uh, you know the, the the appointment of social and special envoy has not been there. And then, not to mention then the follow-ups, you know, for 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 the visit of the special envoy and to, to assess the situation in Myanmar. And even uh, the next day, I think Tatmadaw, the the SAC, uh, announced uh, uh, <clears throat> released a statement that it would only accept, you know, the the visit by any envoy from ASEAN if they the situation in Myanmar has been already under control, which is basically saying. You know uh, uh, the TMD, the Tatmadaw, is backtracking from the consensus, and now ASEAN has yet to have a kind of an enforcement mechanism for this five consensus. And I think this is the big homework, and 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 uh, time is of the essence uh, in this kind of situation uh, because uh, this humanitarian situation uh, requires ASEAN to move fast. And uh, so far, you know, we have not seen, uh, we have not heard. Uh, that ASEAN would uh, quickly appoint the envoy and then the quickly uh, move to uh, implement the, the five consensus. Um, just to quickly chime in here, um, I think there are both internal and external considerations in ASEAN's response as well. Um, internally, obviously, the ASEAN uh, Secretariat um, really is uh, a bureaucrat and does not have a lot of power uh, in the traditional sense compared to, say, the EU uh, President or Commissioner. Um, and in that way, uh, Brunei has appeared to be taking a somewhat more passive role. Uh, is, could there be a case to be made that Brunei could be or could take the lead a bit more at least in trying to appoint a special envoy quicker? Certainly, but such is the setup of ASEAN that two other panelists have mentioned that it's very difficult for them to act uh, without getting some consensus. I think the external consideration is that um, the US response has been uh, very predictable. Uh, sanctions, sanctions, and more sanctions. And uh, ASEAN uh, knows that this at this juncture that is not exactly very effective. Um, as difficult as it is, they must engage with the junta. They must engage with the military leaders. China has taken a bit of a more laissez-faire approach because they're trying to hedge their bets. So really, there is no one 
else to take charge other than ASEAN. But obviously ASEAN, within ASEAN, a lot of countries, as Lips already said, they themselves, their own track record in terms of human rights and democracy is not exactly the strongest. So you would, it may appear very contradictory if they were suddenly to put out very forceful statements condemning this, condemning that. So we see a unique uh, situation where Indonesia, uh, Singapore, and to maybe to some extent Malaysia, put out very strongly worded statement when um, Vivian Balakrishna, Singapore's foreign minister, made a statement in parliament on the uh, coup and said that violence against uh, unarmed protesters is unacceptable. That created a bit, bit of a, a, a hoo-ha in, in, in local media circles because that is, uh, in living memory, some of the strongest words that Singapore has had uh, to, in, in response to uh, events happening in another country. And indeed, I think uh, we see that in PMV's very uh, personal drive as well to push for the five-point consensus, although the six-point in releasing political detainees was not placed um, on it. Nevertheless, we see uh, certain key leaders emerging in Indonesia, obviously very clearly playing a leading role as well, trying to, trying to take charge, um, not allowing some of the a more extreme criticism of ASEAN to materialize as well. And I think in that regard, they have, they have uh, um, achieved that small goal at least to show very clearly that they have managed, no, no other country has managed to bring ASEAN, uh, bring Myanmar, sorry, to the table and the Junta General to the table. Um, and at least to get him to agree, uh, we can have a discussion whether they're backtracking or not. And, and it, there's always a fear that maybe, but the fact that he agreed to turn up, he... Uh, acceded to the and agreed to the four point uh, five point consensus. To me, I think that that is um, hugely symbolic because ASEAN's views matters and ASEAN has the convening power uh, to bring Myanmar to the table. Uh, but a lot hinges, indeed, as as Philip rightly pointed, a lot a lot hinges on the appointment of the special envoy um, and whether the five point consensus will be seen as a package, meaning if one fails, everything fails, or if they're going to take a a, a more uh, relaxed approach. You can do one first, okay, the next point, you can drop it and then we'll do the next one. Uh, the NUG, the National uh, Government, uh, have already made claims that no, all of this must be accepted, plus you must relate, release political detainees. Um, I think we need to take a more realistic view um, and allow ASEAN some flexibility, some time uh, to do their work. But of course, time is uh, very pressing in a situation like this um, and there are no, no easy ways to implement this. All eyes will be on Brunei, um, and how fast, how fast, and how quickly they can appoint the special envoy. Well, yeah, I would expect that uh, actually, you know, <coughs> Brunei could uh, act fast as a chair of ASEAN this mm. year, because the Secretary General is a Bruneian as well. So mm. you know, there's a, a lot of modality actually uh, that Brunei has, but uh, it's been quite puzzling that right. uh, it's been 10 days and we haven't uh, seen any uh, progress in, in terms of uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, appointing this, this special envoy. And uh, <clears throat> with regard to uh, the Adilan's opinion about the, whether we should see this uh, ASEAN efforts as a, a package or you know, we can uh, uh, parcel it out uh, to several steps. Uh, and I think this is, this is a hard question to answer. Because you know the NUG uh, already accused uh, ASEAN of giving Tatmadaw is 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 uh, buying times. You know, if it is not under one package, then uh, certainly it will give 
some room for Tatmadaw to consolidate itself, and then the the the, the bleak prospect for 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 democracy to return, so to speak, in in in, in Myanmar. Uh, I think I I would be in the in the position that uh, we should try to sell this ASEAN uh, effort as a as a one package. You know, that uh, if you start with the cessation of violence, uh, humanitarian pause, if you like, and then uh, it should be followed by <clears throat> humanitarian assistance because. I think now uh, Myanmar economy uh, has uh, already been hit because of the sanctions and 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 then the situation on the ground. So uh, there is a, a pretext for uh, ASEAN uh, humanitarian intervention, you know, uh, to to deliver uh, humanitarian assistance to to the people of Myanmar. But it requires a violence to stop, and 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 that's uh, I think what the leaders had in mind with the five consensus. That uh, after the, uh, the Tatmadaw agreed to stop the killing, and then the situation would be conducive for the special envoy to come to Myanmar, speak to the people, do the, the needs assessment, and then uh, start the humanitarian assistance and giving space for uh, for dialogue. If, if so, ASEAN could facilitate, you know, the uh, the next step of a dialogue for long term. Uh, conflict resolution in Myanmar. I think that's what this five consensus <laughs> uh, package is all about. Uh, but then uh, the situation seems to be, you know, now <clears throat> muddy because uh, ASEAN failed to act to follow up quickly on the five consensus that they agreed on uh, on April twenty fourth. We had we saw the kind of predictable response from some in the international some in the international community about about sanctions. Um, is there an ASEAN consensus or or a national ones within Southeast Asia uh, about the effect of sanctions on sort of an, in a humanitarian sense that, that these would affect in disproportionately affect the the already um, embattled poor? Uh, what what is the what are the thoughts on uh, sanctions within ASEAN? External sanctions are they neutral? Are they? Uh I guess Dylan would probably have a thought on this as well. Uh, my reading of this is that there is a very clear distaste for sanctions within ASEAN circles. And I think this was crystallized, especially during the 1990s and the 2000s, when Myanmar was still a pariah state and was still very much part of the ASEAN club. And the, the line that ASEAN articulated quite consistently was that sanctions are counterproductive. And uh, having said that, I must say that in this particular instance, I do see more calls within more vibrant and articulate civil society actors within Southeast Asian countries who nonetheless are making an important case for why there should be a case for targeted sanctions specifically towards the military. So sanctions, there are blanket sanctions that affect societies at large. That's, I think... In my reading, it's a no from all sectors, right. uh, but specifically san sanctions against military actors, their commercial interest, whether it's gas, whether it's uh, natural gas, mining, timber logging, all sorts of things. I think there's, there's a clear line that that's something that's worth pursuing and putting pressure on. Yeah, I completely, completely uh, agree with Deepak. Like, there's no appetite for sanctions, and the message has been very consistent. It has not worked, will not work, and will never work. Of course, whether that is true or not, it's open to debate. But that has always been the 
uh, view. And I think Deepak is absolutely right that this also um, showed the activism of civil society, human rights activists across Southeast Asia. Um, in, in fact, in Singapore's case, there was a successful example of, of some uh, of, of a co-founder of Razor, I believe, but I need to double check whether this is true or not, um, divesting his stake in a company in Myanmar. Um, right. And interestingly, Singapore is the uh, largest foreign investor in Myanmar. So theoretically, we would have the most economic leverage. Uh, very quickly, a lot of commentators, civil rights activists are saying, hey, look, the Singapore government can use that to apply pressure on Myanmar, but uh, the, the, the Singapore government has always been saying that this could cause more harm um, than help the people um, of Myanmar. Can I just go back to a point that, uh, I'm sort of going back to a point that was raised earlier, but, but I may have to sort of disagree a bit with my panelists on their perceptions of ASEAN's pace on, the pace of ASEAN's diplomacy on this particular Myanmar coup. Uh, and actually, I was very surprised when on the 1st of February, when the coup actually took place, by the end of the day, we actually had a chair's statement from ASEAN on the 1st of February. It was a very succinct. You found that fast. I thought it was very fast. It's very un-ASEAN-like in my view. <laughs> and, and from what, what I understand, th that had something to do with the fact, this happy coincidence, as it were, that you had a Bruneian Secretary General and Brunei as a chair. And you had this you know, succinct four-point statement that was issued by the chair on the same day. Uh, and the fact that right after that, well, uh, you know, so it, of course, one never knows. In fact, the question is always, is ASEAN, you know, it's, it's hardly a case of ASEAN being impelled into decisive concerted action as much as being pushed and shoved and dragged into some form of action. But as it turns out, looking back, you had that first statement on the 1st of uh, February, 2nd of March, that's a month later, you have ASEAN's foreign ministers coming together, right, to discuss this. Of course, the ASEAN practice, diplomatic practice is never to identify the issue for which you're meeting. So never would they say that you're meeting to talk about Myanmar, but you're meeting to talk about COVID-19 and we're talking about ASEAN community building and so on. Nonetheless, there is a meeting, a special, <clears throat> it was an informal meeting, right, of ASEAN foreign ministers on 2nd. And then you have a leaders meeting happen in April, and if you look back in terms of other crisis situations in ASEAN's history, uh, uh, whether it was, say, Vietnam's invasion of Cambodia, uh, or whether it was even East Timor or the, 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 the Cambodia coup of 1997, uh, you may have had, of course, foreign ministers meeting, but a summit meeting taking place within the space of two months is something that, you know, is, is not something that happens, uh, uh, is not something that has happened, in my view. Uh, so there has been a certain, uh, something interesting about the fact that all these things did happen. The question, of course, however, is uh, uh, to, to qualify that comparison, I think if you look at the, uh, the Cold War period, it was enough for the foreign ministers to meet. And it was enough for them to meet because when they met, they also issued a joint statement. In this particular instance, they're not issuing joint statements. They, they have to issue a chair statement because there actually isn't a complete meeting of mind among all the members on the problem at hand. But nonetheless, to just put this out there, I was surprised that actually there is a lot that ASEAN has you know, I'm not celebrating ASEAN. I'm just saying there is stuff that they have done. It's okay to celebrate ASEAN. I, I, no, I, I'm not going to celebrate and also not not celebrate ASEAN. <laughs> the splitters and the lumpers, I'm, I'm neither of the two. Dylan, like you've, you've raised a couple times the role of Indonesian leadership here. Um, like the, the shuttle diplomacy that was very visible on Twitter in late February, I thought was really interesting. And 
maybe not so ASEAN in, in kind of the publicness of the reaching out, which I think at least a couple, I think Phillips maybe, uh, a couple of Jakarta Post op-ed kind of statements suggested that China had been involved in that too, that, um, that there'd been discussions with China at the time as well. So maybe we can, we can shift to appraisals, but as we go, think a little bit about the history, think a little bit more in depth about what's been done and why. I hadn't thought about the Brunei uh, link with the Secretariat as being a, a way that has allowed ASEAN to be a little bit more nimble. So that's really interesting to me. So I might, might like to hear more about that as well. I'm curious if it, what you think about the effects of this, uh, this flurry of, of either slow or surprisingly quick ASEAN activity, um, uh, what you're, you think in terms of their effects. Uh, I am happy with what ASEAN has done, but um, I'm happy in that uh, I'm happy because ASEAN has, in some ways, met the challenge. Of course, that I, I, I see that as being somewhat distinct from the outcomes, whether it can create uh, positive outcomes in Myanmar. I think that's a separate story. But to me, uh, seeing ASEAN being able to act, um, seeing that there are uh, foreign ministers, that there are leaders willing to take charge in the name, invoking the name of ASEAN, and in the name of preserving ASEAN centrality to act, um, in a matter which should and must, of course, greatly concern um, ASEAN um, taking the charge. So to me, I see that as a small positive. It might seem a bit perverse talking about positives when nothing has actually really been achieved in changing the realities on the ground in Myanmar. Um, but I'm not so sure whether at the end of the day, this will help move the needle towards um, um, ending violence. I hope that it does. Um, but it, it would be very speculative to say uh, how it will pan out. So I, I, really, I really dare not make a speculation in that regard. Um, I will also add that, because you, you, did, you, you raised China briefly, um, that the role of external powers nevertheless still loom large. So uh, a, a meeting will be convened, I think, with ASEAN and China and US um, at the end of May. Um, Hopefully by then we'll see the appointment of a special envoy, but I think that that is significant as well because there's an acknowledgement that China, uh, United States, uh, who have a clear vested interest in the region needs to be consulted. Um, it is also interesting that um, three or four foreign ministers made their way to China to meet with uh, Wang Yi. And the most pressing question that reporters had was, um, has, this, has this got to do anything with ASEAN at all? Because they came one after the other meeting these uh, ASEAN foreign ministers. Well, to me, it was quite clear that it certainly is that element there. Um, even though ASEAN is in the driving seat, it knows that it needs, in, in some ways, it requires the diplomatic heft of China uh, uh, um, in pushing for any diplomatic solution to this. Um, China is in a very tricky position because its relationship with Myanmar is very complicated, uh, to say the least. It has a lot of economic interests in Myanmar, the second largest investor after Singapore. And um, I think all of us will be well aware of the very virulent, uh, strong anti-Chinese sentiment um, that this coup has revealed in the protests. Because while they are, um, the anti-coup protesters are directing their anger towards uh, the, the, the next biggest target is actually China. And I think the Chinese are quite taken aback, uh, quite taken aback by the ferocity of, of, of this anger as well. They have very key uh, infrastructural 
renewable energy projects in Myanmar. And from their perspective, uh, it seems that because of, they are trying to hedge their bets, uh, they're taking a bit more of a laissez-faire approach. So they're more than happy to let the uh, let ASEAN take the drive, driver's seat uh, in finding a diplomatic solution. But it's also interesting to note that uh, Russia and China removed the statement at the UN uh, referring to asking the military to stop violence against um, unarmed protesters. So again, that fuels a lot of the rage and anger that the uh, anti protesters in Myanmar feel because they see this as them enabling, rightfully or wrongly, um, rightfully or wrongly, enabling the uh, military military regime to persist. Um, and they see China's very cold calculation uh, in their diplomatic statements. If you see, there's always been, oh, we are very concerned about the, our projects, our economic uh, projects that we have there. We want to protect Chinese property and livelihoods. They see this as uh, being very cold, calculated, they're not caring about the lives of, in their eyes, in their eyes, in the protesters, are not caring the lives of uh, the protesters themselves. Um, and that, that resulted in a very a strong reaction against China. So I see, regardless of who remains in power, eventually, whether it is the Junta government or whether we will see a return to democracy, I think um, China in particular is one to watch because they will not have an easy time uh, moving forward. So, so thinking about what Dylan's just stepped us through in terms of giving some kind of appraisal to what's gone on so far and thinking about the role of uh, of other actors within and beyond the region as well, I'm curious perhaps if there are some historical analogies, if there's any ways we can look back to what ASEAN's done in the past to get a sense uh, of the effects or results of what we're seeing going on today. And maybe Deepak, you can step us through this a little bit. Uh, sure. Um, uh, on the question of the e effects of the last two or three months of what's what ASEAN has been doing, again, I think uh, both Dylan and Phillips have spoken quite a bit about the five points, and I think they've covered some great ground there. And, and I, I personally am I'm left with more questions than answers at this point as to how does one actually even implement any of this? What is the pressure system? What sort of leverage does ASEAN have to see this through? Uh, and so on and so forth. So really, it's too early to talk. In my view, at least, I, I find it difficult to have an answer to the question of what are the effects of ASEAN's diplomatic efforts at this point in time. But, uh, but, but talking about historical comparisons, and this is something that does interest me a great deal, and, and, and you know, I, this is something that uh, I, I think I, re I recently re written about as well. And um, what I think, there have been, there's been there have several scholars, not just me, who have been talking about what are the templates that are available for ASEAN in terms of uh, dealing with this, the, with the with the Myanmar coup issue, you know, uh, what lessons can it draw from its own past? And there are some who have argued that the the, the lessons are in ASEAN's response to uh, or uh, ASEAN's response, or individual Southeast Asian states and their response to the coup in Cambodia in 1970 by Lon Others, uh, myself, uh, have written about what ASEAN did after uh, Vietnam's invasion of Cambodia in 1978, so the, the Cambodia conflict from 78 to 1991. And more recently, I've seen scholars talk about 1997 and the coup in Cambodia. It's closer to our history as well, to what's happening. And, and, uh, and to many, a coup seems to be a more interesting parallel to what's unfolding in Myanmar today. And, and I think this is interesting, but I think this is also, it, it's interesting to talk about that particular, what happened in Cambodia in 1997, also to see why a coup situation doesn't entirely translate to what's happening right now in Myanmar. 
So if you look closely at what happened in 1997, you had two factions. You had Hun Sen, C uh, Cambodia People's Party, the CPP, and you had the, uh, Nor the Prince Norodom uh, uh, sorry, Prince uh, Norodom Ranarit, uh, who was heading Hun Sen Pek. And uh, so he was the first prime minister. Hun Sen was second prime minister. There's a past struggle. Hun Sen stages the coup. And this happens just a few days before an ASEAN meeting. And in fact, the meeting where ASEAN, where Cambodia would be, would be given full membership to ASEAN. So this is really seen as an embarrassment to Suharto, uh, and an embarrassment to ASEAN. Uh, you know that, that that Hun Sen decided to change the status quo. And very soon after, what happens is that um, ASEAN does something that is perceived to be quite unprecedented. It actually suspends, or rather, it postpones uh, uh, Cambodia's accession into ASEAN, and it's seen as uh, unprecedented because suddenly a political criterion is being advanced as the basis for membership to ASEAN. In this case, the unconstitutional change of government, right? Uh, and uh, and what happens here is uh, very interesting because, um, and the reason why this does not really translate to the current case is because in the case of what happened in 1997 in Cambodia, you basically had two factions that could ultimately be reconciled. And there was this, and this had to do with the peculiarities of the Cambodian case itself, where what eventually happened was that uh, ASEAN, along with external partners, in particular the Japanese, came up with this peace plan, uh, whereby uh, it was uh, agreed that basically Hun Sen would, uh, the uh, Prince Ranarid uh, would be tried for these alleged crimes of his uh, uh, by Hun Sen and his regime, and Prince Ranarid would be presumably found guilty. Uh, and charged, uh, but soon after he would be given full royal pardon uh, by the king's by King Sihanouk. Uh, and once he was given full pardon, he would be allowed to return to Cambodia, take part in the political process, in the elections that were scheduled for the next year. And in that manner, there would be some form of accommodation between these two competing uh, uh, factions uh, in Cambodia. And that's in fact exactly what happened. Uh, so, uh, but what's different in this particular case, in the case of uh, Myanmar, is that you do not have any mechanism through which these conflicting parties have a way to sustain their lines, not stage a climb down in any way, and come together. Right? Uh, so, so, yeah, so, so yes, there was some very interesting ASEAN diplomatic action that did take place during the 1997 Cambodia coup where ASEAN did temporarily postpone Cambodia's membership to ASEAN. And furthermore, it, you know, in fact, it went beyond, ASEAN went a step further because thanks to countries, in particular Singapore, actually, they, they made it clear that it was, it was just not good enough that you just had another elections the next year and everything would be all right. Uh, Singapore, in particular, emphasized that the coalitional agreements that were, that, that were made once Hun Sen and uh, Prince Ranrith came together, they would have to be honored as well, in, in particular the creation of a Senate. And only once that was done, in early 1999, did Cambodia become a full member of, of ASEAN. So yes, there was this instance where a, a certain political requirement had to be met for a country to become part of ASEAN. Uh, but those peculiarities of the Cambodian case don't travel well to Myanmar today, where you don't have a base, a way in which that fundamental issue of how do you reconcile these two actors come together. That, 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 that's not available. I have a question for Phillips about uh, that you've written a bit, bit about for, in terms of historical precedent. Could you say a bit about the sort of the Nargis model and if this is an, an interesting parallel for the role of, of ASEAN uh, as an intermediary with Myanmar? 
Right. Uh, if I may, Eric, uh, before uh, I'm going to your question, uh, it's interesting to, I think, to follow up what uh, Deepak just said about uh, how ASEAN responds to coup. Uh, because the most recent one would be the 2014 coup in Thailand, and ASEAN relatively did nothing. <laughs> you know, so this is uh, you know at one point ASEAN was very active, uh, at the other point ASEAN uh, you know uh, was so silent. You know, uh, in in Thai in the Thai case in particular, but that uh, also uh, uh, provide actually uh, you know uh, some thinking about uh, ASEAN response to. Uh, to domestic affairs of, of a, a country. Uh, the coup in, in, in Thailand, uh, Thailand is certainly a different uh, political system. It still has the king who can overrule and uh, who can wreck the, you know, uh, the, the political outcome. But certainly, uh, you know, in, in Myanmar, there's no such kind of a, a above, uh, above the power of the military. So that's why I think uh, response to Myanmar has been uh, very strong. Uh, I think for not only from ASEAN uh, <clears throat> countries and ASEAN civil societies, international communities, because the track records of the of the uh, Myanmar military had been so brutal. You know, uh, 1988 was a brutal one, and then now we have this, uh, you know, <clears throat> uh, happening again in, in Myanmar. So. so uh, it probably uh, gave some confidence for the for the Myanmar military that ASEAN would do nothing, uh, because they look at the example of 2014 coup in, in, in Thailand, and uh, that's why probably uh, Thailand has been kind of a lukewarm, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, responding to the Myanmar issue. But uh, it might also be a modality for ASEAN that probably military to military uh, contact between uh, the Thai military and the Tatmadaw might might help you know, in, 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 in directing the political outcome in Myanmar. Now, uh, when we're talking about the, <clears throat> the Naji cyclone, uh, yes, I think uh, it's a two completely different uh, you know, a situation. Uh, cyclone, Naji cyclone certainly is a humanitarian one. But if we remember what happened uh, during that time was a very, <clears throat> Uh, a strong response from ASEAN. And ASEAN was so determined to <clears throat> push uh, the military to accept uh, humanitarian assistance by ASEAN. And at that time, we had a very strong uh, ASEAN Secretary General, uh, Surin Pitswan. The late Surin Pitswan uh, was very instrumental together with the uh, Foreign Minister of Indonesia at that time, uh, Hassan Wirayuda, both pressed the Tatmadaw to accept ASEAN to get in and deliver humanitarian assistance. And because of the experience uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, in the uh, Narja Cyclone, then ASEAN set up the AHA Center. Now it's a, it's a body uh, under the ASEAN framework that is dedicated to, uh, to provide humanitarian assistance whenever disasters uh, happen across Southeast Asia. So, <clears throat> that kind of situation. And then the, the template uh, at that time was that ASEAN uh, setting up a kind of a task force uh, to deal with the uh, Narji cyclone in, in Myanmar. And then the, the task force uh, was 
headed by the Secretary General himself, Surin Pitswan. So this is a kind of outlier situation when you have a, a very strong personalities uh, in the ASEAN Secretariat, uh, uh, foreign, uh, former foreign minister of Thailand, Surin Pitsuan. So he had all this diplomatic network, he had the institutions, and he had the credibility at that time. So uh, for the Tatmadaw, it's, it's uh, the, the uh, Myanmar junta at that time, it's difficult not to accept the uh, ASEAN intervention. But right now, well, uh, I don't know how to say this, but it seems that uh, we have some leadership problem in ASEAN uh, in the past few years. And, and uh, this, is, this has been subject of so many research and discussion and debates in, in Southeast Asia that uh, you know, in the past, when the ASEAN was a club of dictator, you have uh, strong personalities in every country. They've been knowing each other for long. They could just uh, pick up a, a phone and then you know, ask for favor and so on, and then things, uh, they get things done. You know, uh, Suharto, Marcos, and then uh, Mahathir, uh, Lee Kuan Yew, you know, they could easily solve problems if they wanted. But now, you know, uh, and they know each other for long. But this is the, the downside, if you will, quote unquote, of democracy in Southeast Asia. Leaders come and go. Uh, so they don't have enough time to socialize, you know, unlike the, in the past, they, they, they understand each other so well. Uh, right now, you had this uh, leaders come and go uh, while you have a kind of a weak institutionalized uh, problem solving mechanism in ASEAN. Uh, you know, I don't know whether Deepak uh, agrees uh, with that, but, you know, as an institution, uh, as a platform, uh, ASEAN uh, is not really a, a conflict resolution uh, platform. Uh, it's, uh, <clears throat> uh, it has a lot of homework uh, to be done uh, for ASEAN to, to, to act or, or to be able to act very quickly in a situation uh, like uh, the one in Myanmar that we are facing right now. Just, just to quick. The uh, chime in. I don't think this was mentioned before, but um, in 2006, Myanmar voluntarily gave up um, chairmanship because of very strong uh, pressure from US and the EU. Um, and in that way, there exists certain informal punishment mechanisms uh, to deal with the Myanmar issue, but that's a very blunt instrument. The question is, I think, how far can ASEAN go? How far um, do we think that ASEAN should go? Um, and for me, I think that it's always better to engage than punish, although there are others, and I'd be curious to hear what the others say. So would you guys uh, consider, or if, if this situation worsens, it doesn't improve, in fact worsens, then would theoretically expelling Myanmar be a plausible option or are we comfortable having a military government and legitimately recognize them as a member of ASEAN? How far can ASEAN go uh, in that regard? Uh, that is something that perhaps, hopefully not, we will not reach that, reach that stage, but it's something that perhaps we can consider <laughs> as well. Yeah, so uh, essentially, I think what what uh, <clears throat> Dylan has said, uh, I think we have to think about what's the end game of all this effort. Mm -hmm. you know, 
uh, ASEAN meetings and what's the end game? Just to stop violence and then acknowledge the military. Of course, uh, you know, people in Myanmar uh, had different opinion that they wanted to, you know, the, the, the election uh, be accepted by the military. So then uh, they would no longer have this military government. Uh, right now, we only talk about uh, the humanitarian situation, the killing. But uh, I think for ASEAN, this is uh, a, different, uh, a different game because now we are uh, in the situation that we have to think about the end game, the, the longer term uh, a solution for this. And uh, I, I don't know whether ASEAN is, is, is well equipped for that uh, because just to stop violence and then uh, provide the humanitarian assistance and then we go. Uh, so the military could happily govern uh, because the situation has been under control. Uh, I don't think that that should be uh, our objective. It should be a longer term, you know, uh, uh, engagement uh, with the, with the Tatmadaw and facilitating the longer term processes uh, within Myanmar to, 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 to decide, so they could decide by themselves how they would uh, solve their, you know, differences. Uh, so if I may come in here, and, and sorry, I'm going to break the flow of this really interesting conversation, but I promise I will try and come back to this, and I'll try and keep this short. Just to go back to, uh, to what uh, Eric asked, as well as what, uh, and, and, and also what Philip subsequently in his response. So two interesting cases were brought up. One was ASEAN's response to the Nergis cyclone in 2008, and then there was also the Thai coup of 2014. And again, in terms of connecting this to the question that so that that, that uh, Phillips has sort of left us what left us with, which is what is the end game? How does where does this go? Uh, in, and again, my interest therefore in answering that question is by looking to the past and by asking what history can tell us in terms of again under specific conditions, what is ASEAN as an instrument of diplomacy capable of? Very specifically. So so I think important differences there that in the case of Nargis, ASEAN was able to do what it did because it was. The, the objective was the provision of humanitarian assistance that did not involve po political conditionalities. In fact, it had to constantly assuage the, the Tatmadaw that, hey, this is not a political process, and, and this, is, this is only humanitarian assistance, right? Uh, and in the case of the Thai coup, this is a really great point, right? Uh, and you're absolutely right. I think there are so many, there's a great story out there about, uh, about Tan Shui and Minong Lang and, and Prayut and Prem and, and, and the entire group and how their convergences and how much they've learned mutually from one another. But I think that when it comes to, again, comparing Thailand 2014 or Thailand over decades and its coup culture with what's happening right now in Myanmar, I can't think of a coup in modern or even 20th century Southeast Asian history. Well, I suppose there are, but, but, but this really stands out. A coup that really has such, such a thin social base to it. So even if you have coups in Thailand, you know that the coup plotters will always have a conservative uh, social forces that will come and rally for them and organize themselves, mobilize on the streets, which is what the yellow shirts were, right? In the case of Myanmar today, the military really is standing as an institution into itself and, and it's added against society at large. It does not have a social base to itself. An incredible sort of collection of social groups and interests have come together against the military as an institution. Uh, and, and this is also to connect to the point of endgame, which is why ASEAN members, may, even though their conservative instincts will be to continue to engage with the military and you know, unwittingly be manipulated by the military if need be as well, 
But I think they may wish to keep in mind, uh, sounds very presumptuous for me to say this, but I think what is worth keeping in mind here is that this is uh, uh, the fact that the, 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 the actor that they are buttressing up here is, is an actor that does not enjoy broad social depth, broad social support. And the, the, the social forces that are outside uh, of state power today are, will, will, will in future constitute themselves as a political actor in one form or the other. And there will be a moment of reckoning where they'll be asking, hey, ASEAN, where were you? You condoned and enabled the junta's the armed assault against us, right? And then you have to deal with a whole generation with long memories about what ASEAN did. So there is a price to perhaps uh, uh, to shore up an actor that has such thin social support. And this is not me sort of making this up. This is uh, people who sort of deal with primary sources, uh, read the language, who are writing about the fact that the, it's really the junta, the institution versus society at this point in time in Myanmar. I've seen um, I've seen in from um, Burmese and Thai activists both sort of that that have that have said that they think that Thailand is leading on on COVID as an excuse for um, its behavior at the border with refugee um, issues. Now, I mean that's a bit of a maybe a conspiracy theory. That's because it's true there are issues with COVID. Um, do you think uh, do you think that uh, COVID has played a role in some of the action inaction and some of the behaviors we've seen in ASEAN that's sort of a, a new twist? Well, if anything, I would say that um, ASEAN has done remarkably well despite COVID, uh, being able to sure. uh, put through all these meetings, consensus, shuttle diplomacy, in what is normally, a, uh, in what would be a really a crisis situation because of COVID, um, which goes to show the the gravity of the situation in Myanmar and how much um, I think ASEAN feel that this will be a test of their credibility and centrality as well. Um, and uh, while the end result is still not clear, uh, personally, I think ASEAN has uh, met the challenges so far. Could it have done more? Uh, can it has been, could it be quicker in, say, appointing a special envoy, getting its act together in that regard? Of course, I mean, you can always hope that they do better, institutions do better, but uh, given the conditions um, right now, I think, I think, I think ASEAN has given itself a rather good account. Okay, so just building on that a little bit, Dylan, I think you've already, uh, you've already introduced the final question I, uh, I wanted to, to raise here with you three, um, but perhaps maybe we can, we can revisit this and just think a little bit more into the future. Dylan, you raised the idea that there may be some end game we're moving towards. So I might invite our three speakers here to uh, to think again a little bit about what we might expect to see in the near or longer term, and perhaps conclude with a final thought or two that you think would be useful for our uh, our listeners today. So Phillips, perhaps you could you could begin. Yeah, uh, I think uh, for for ASEAN, the end game should not only be to stop the violence, uh, because I think what needs to be achieved is political settlement, but uh, uh, stopping the violence would be the first step. Uh, and then, the, of course, uh, when we are talking about uh, ASEAN as a community, uh, ASEAN is not as uh, as strong as the other regional organization, the organization of uh, <clears throat> African Union or the organization of uh, American states, OAS, 
they have these provisions in their uh, charter that they would not accept unconstitutional change of government, you know, in their region. But ASEAN does not have that kind of provision, and uh, so that uh, it's a, a kind of a <clears throat> uh, a situation where ASEAN needs to walk a thin line uh, when it comes to the issue of this uh, kind of a, a domestic. Uh, uh, political conflicts. Now, uh, the political settlements, not only between the NUG uh, and the SAC and the military, because these uh, various factions within uh, Myanmar, uh, who are now against the military, uh, they also have their uh, uh, concerns or their complaints about the the incumbent government of uh, NLD, the ethnic minority groups, ethnic minority parties, and uh, various uh, states uh, within Myanmar that uh, somehow they they were not happy as well. But for now, they agreed with the NLD that uh, their common enemy is the military. Now, uh, then the 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 longer term. I think uh, end game for, for Myanmar would be to find a political settlement among these various factions. Uh, you know, once uh, the situation is under control, it should facilitate space for for the start of dialogue uh, within Myanmar. Perhaps I'll ask uh, Deepak if you want to jump in with some final thoughts here. Sure. I think the um, I think it's I think it's it's on the one hand we could. In terms of how this is going to unfold, I'm not sure about the end game, but how this is going to unfold, I think one could see that one could say that we are just coasting towards a political settlement that is heavily stacked in the favor of the military, right? So the military says the military basically now buys time, it domesticates these various social forces added against it, and it basically seeks international buy-in for an election next year, where it, where it effectively proscribes the NLD and is able to sort of and clearly, because it enjoys such a, it does not enjoy a social base. It, is, it has such thin social foundations that probably will have to uh, to rig the elections that, in order to have a favorable outcome. And again, ASEAN might send election observers, but that was you know, ultimately that may not you know be enough for the military not to do what it wants to do uh, and fix the situation to its advantage. Uh, but on the other hand, what I will be very interested in observing in the coming months will be to see what the national unity government actually does. This is a really interesting set of actors. Some of many of almost all of them are underground. Some of them are in exile in the hills of northeastern India, uh, are trying to sort of and of course they have they're trying to now organize themselves uh, through a people's force, which is seen as a precursor for something more concrete like an army. Uh, in in collaboration with the ethnic armed organizations and also local administration, especially in the rural areas where they are trying to organize themselves uh, and they have a little more leeway because uh, the Tatmadaw is not and its surveillance is not uh, as great there uh, as opposed to the urban centers. Anyway, so the point being that the NUG uh, how it organizes itself and the fact that it's also reaching out to foreign governments and is now cohering itself in order to wage an international recognition battle. Uh, what happens at the United Nations when the General Assembly starts in September 2021? Uh, what happens at the Credentials Committee? Uh, is the NUG able to sway some members to vote for it? Because the Security Council is certainly not going to, uh, you know, uh, throw its support for the NUG with 
China and Russia vetoing such a proposal, but the fact, but the General Assembly can do things, even if the Security Council does not throw its support for, uh, you know, has, 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 takes a different line. So, so what happens at, at the UN General Assembly, uh, and as a result of which, uh, how do individual members, member states of ASEAN in Southeast Asia, not ASEAN collectively, but presumably Singapore or Indonesia or uh, or, or Malaysia, what do what, how do they deal with the diplomatic recognition game? So how strong is the NUG as an entity? How does it grow in the coming months and, and present itself as a, as a counter uh, to, uh, to, to the junta is something that I'll be looking to, because I think that might have an impact in terms of shaping how the story unfolds. I, I, I largely agree with uh, Philips and Park has already said, and I think they make made excellent interventions into the question of how uh, this will pan out. So I'll keep it really short. Um, this, this will sound a, a tad dramatic, but I think that beyond uh, just the Myanmar issue, and, and ASEAN is bigger than a Myanmar coup, um, is, the, over the battle, uh, is a battle over the soul of ASEAN in a way. Uh, the, I think ASEAN is at an inflection point. Um, a lot of, lots of observers have claimed that ASEAN is now at an inflection point, but um, the sense that ASEAN is in crisis mode and it has its centrality weakened and it has not been, it's been hamstrung by this, hamstrung by that, not being able to act. Um, I think this is a, whatever and whatever eventually happens, I think we will look back and look at how ASEAN has done um, eventually over a few years and then perhaps Perhaps, hopefully, we'll say that, okay, ASEAN has met the challenge completely and fully and has done well. But I see this issue beyond just the Myanmar coup, however important it is, um, as, as a key challenge for ASEAN. Um, and to be a bit more dramatic, perhaps, over the soul of ASEAN, what, what ASEAN actually stands for, how can it act in crisis moments? Because if ASEAN has proven itself uh, to be not useful during crisis moments in Southeast Asia, then what, what is the point of ASEAN? Maybe we can ask the question. Some people will be asking, I will be asking the question. So that's my very short uh, final thoughts on this. How, how about you, Dr. Glass? What, what are your final thoughts? You kind of get... um, I mean, I might, I might echo Dylan's, uh, Dylan's perhaps dramatic uh, point here that I do think this is a clear test case for that much lauded ASEAN centrality uh, to show that it can play a, a constructive role uh, in in the region and um, keeping an eye similarly as, as Deepak on the kind of credential issue as well, which is something we haven't really touched on, but ASEAN has been walking a fine line on that front uh, already in terms of uh, not giving formal recognition and dues to the to the military junta here. So I'll be I'll be keeping an eye on how it walks this fine line. I'm perhaps less optimistic that we'll be able to see like I could see more uh, ASEAN continuing this slow game of <clears throat> implicit recognition, but not full recognition, continuing dialogue almost indefinitely as 44, perhaps 5,000 political detainees swell in number and violence ebbs and flows domestically uh, in Myanmar. So I'll be, I'll be keeping an eye and uh, but agree that this is an interesting inflection point for the organization to demonstrate its centrality and, and a way for it to, to better not only the, the states of the region, but the populations of the region that supposedly it's... Uh, it's pursuing a, a people-oriented community in support of so, uh, so much and much to keep an eye on. Well, uh, on behalf of my myself and uh, and Ari Glass, uh, we want to thank uh, Deepak Nair, Philip Fermonte, 
and and Dylan Lowe and um, and let's resolve to get you guys to our campus sometime in the near term to talk about this face to face. We'll have our own ASEAN summit. <laughs> yeah, I'll thank thank you all again for joining. It was a really wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Southeast Asia Crossroads. We would like to give thanks to Tantracoon for the use of his track, Electric Can, and a thanks to our audio producer, Amelia McCoy. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you tune in next time.